Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come back from God, he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of God. Well, yes and amen. We are continuing in our series entitled The Upper Room. And last week, we sort of did the background on John's chapter, how they got in this room, who is in the room. And I really encourage you, I'm not going to have time to do a recap today, but I encourage you to go to our website, listen to that. And, and really what we learned was this, that when we look at the disciples who follow Jesus, there are categories. There's a number of them from the 200 to 172 to 120 to the 72 to the 12 and then to the 3. And what we said is, is that using the language that God's desire is that we would be people of the upper room. That when you think about this, in John 13 through 17, which is what we're going to be studying over these next couple of months, these, this is Jesus's what's known as the farewell discourse 
Or to put it another way, this is the last block of teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples the night that he is to be betrayed and he dies the next day. So this is massively significant. He is leaving these 12 men with the ministry. And what we said is over these coming weeks, we're going to pull a key principle out of one of these passages of Scripture and identify it as a mark of someone who is an upper room disciple. We said the people that are in the lower room are all about what can Jesus do for me? That's the crowds that showed up to get a free lunch or get a free miracle. But the disciples that were in the upper room literally risked their life all of them died a martyr's death apart from John, and he was boiled alive. I don't know if he got it easier or not, okay? But they gave their life to this mission and this vision because they believed in the purpose of making disciples. And we said this, that Westside's unique purpose, Westside's unique purpose is to invite people who are familiar with Jesus to be followers of Jesus with our family. That there's a lot of people who know about Jesus, and especially in Popper Bluff, you got a Dollar General, Mexican restaurant, car dealership, and a first church such and such on every corner, okay? Everybody's familiar with Jesus, but what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And, and to intro maybe what we're going to learn today, this will be helpful um, I, like many of you, um, have been watching the news over the past week or so with the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, the Queen of England. And, I mean, this is history literally before our eyes. She was the ruling monarch and, and queen of England for 70 years, over 70 years. Her first prime minister was Winston Churchill, okay? That's how long this lady has been around. And she, when you think about it, her family has had controversy, but her as an individual and as a queen has had no controversy for almost 70 plus years. It's unbelievable to think about. But a few years ago, she celebrated her 70th year and reign, and it's called the Queen's Jubilee is what it was called. And she celebrated 70 years of sitting on that throne. And as she does every year when she celebrates, she writes a letter to the people of England. And the, the letter's beautiful, you can look it up, but what is interesting about it is the last line in the letter and then how she signs it. The last line from the Queen of England is this, I hope to continue to serve you with all of my heart. And then she signs the letter, your servant, Elizabeth. What's so interesting about this is, is that the queen has gotten a nickname over this past week. And there's numbers of articles that are referring to her this way. But they call Queen Elizabeth, the queen of England, the servant queen. The servant queen. 
The whole nation is in mourning because she ruled for so long. She ruled with mercy. She ruled with grace. But more than anything, I believe what distinguishes Queen Elizabeth from all the other monarchs is that Queen Elizabeth really saw her position of royalty as an act of service to her people. I mean, it is challenging. She was not another example of power and might. She was a powerful example of servanthood. And what's interesting is, is when you think about it, we do not think about royalty in one category and humility in the same category. It's almost like it's an oxymoron. You would never refer to someone as royalty and then in the same breath, a humble person as well. I say all of that to say that the passage that is before you is one of the most sacred places in all of Scripture because we have the greatest royalty that the world has ever known. We have Jesus Christ who created the cosmos and had angels singing around him day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Leave heaven and come in the form of a man and to live his life. And in these verses, we see a humility that is literally breathtaking. This passage, if there's an ounce of preacher in you at all, makes you salivate at the mouth because it's all laid out. It's all right there. The words that John uses, if you look at the passage, there's all kinds of verbs that he rose up, that he took off, that he bent down. And there is one nail that John is constantly trying to get across from us. But I love what J.C. Ryle says about this passage. The passage that we have read begins one of the most interesting portions of John's gospel. For five consecutive chapters, we find the evangelist recording matters which are not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We can never be thankful enough that the Holy Ghost has caused them to be written down for our learning. In every age, the contents of these chapters have been justly regarded as one of the most precious portions of all of the Bible. They have been the meat and the drink, the strength and the comfort of all true-hearted Christians, let us ever approach this portion of Scripture with peculiar reverence. The place wherein we stand, dear brothers and sisters, is holy ground. That's good. That's really good. And so in this portion of Scripture, the stage is set. Jesus is eating the Passover meal that we're going to learn a little bit about. And, and as the trailer showed you, this was something that was prepared. Jesus was intent to eat this meal with his disciples. He knew what he was going to teach. Well, what's interesting about the context of the passage is that we know that while they were eating supper, 
an argument broke out amongst the disciples. Don't you love the Bible? Like, hey, listen, don't like stained glass the disciples, man, okay? Don't make these guys unbelievable who follow Jesus. Because I think when we think about the Last Supper, we think like, oh, just all this purity and this flowing hair and a bunch of beach boy looking guy and all this stuff. Like these were real people, okay? Real guys who were only saved by the grace of God. But what's even better is we know what the argument was about. In Luke's gospel, he tells us this in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. He says these words, then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Okay, you're at dinner with Jesus. And it's the Passover meal. This is like the biggest meal. This is a big deal for them to be eating it. And these guys are like, I picture them like nudging each other, like trying to give each other dead legs and stuff like that. And they're like, no, man, I'm going to be greater than you in heaven. And he's like, no way, bro. I healed three blind guys. And he's like, I made four lame guys walk. And they're, they're arguing about who is going to be great among them. And Jesus, like, gets wind of the conversation. I, I picture Jesus almost being like a parent, almost, like seeing them argue. And we know that he talks to them, but then he says this, who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as one who serves. I don't know if you've picked up on the word yet, but it's everywhere in the passage. Jesus is giving us a lesson on the first mark of what it is to be an upper room disciple, not a lower room disciple, not a person that critiques, doesn't contribute, not a person that only consumes and doesn't contribute, but someone who believes the mission to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. And there is one core foundational principle that you must begin here. And it's this. Humble service is the mark of every disciple. Each week we're going to add to the wall one of the key marks of what it is to be an upper room disciple. And we start with humble service. You do not mature beyond this. This is not like an ABC class for new converts. And then you move on to the deep stuff, the deep things of God. And then you just study all this theology. And then you walk around with this big old head walking around. And you're not serving anybody. You're not loving anybody. But by God, you can tell people what they're doing wrong. Okay? That is not a mark of an upper room disciple. God in the flesh... Okay, like it, I don't even have words to communicate it. And my job is to, supposed to have words to communicate it. Very God from God. Very light from light. Pure perfection. Humbles himself at this meal. Takes on the form of a slave. 
and washes the disciples' feet. I mean, this is a passage we meditate a lifetime on to try to understand. And I know what the deal is. I've been in the game long enough when it comes to humble service. Like, I can get a bunch of amens in here today, and woo, woo, rah, rah, sis, va, let's go, pastor, let's go, pastor, woo, woo. Like, all that, oh, that's great. Everybody knows this is right. And then it's like, oh, man, you know, like, okay, what we'll do is so we're really busy these next six months. But what we'll do is we're going to plan a time for humble service, okay? And we're going to put it in the count. Oh, we got the recital. Can't do humble service that day. Okay, well, we got it. And it's like this juggle thing. And there's so many Christians that are like, I know this is right. I know I'm supposed to be doing this. But like my life and what Jesus ends up becoming is like sprinkles on a donut for you. It's like an addition to your life. And can I tell you something? If you try to juggle humble service and you try to fit it into your life, it will be exhausting. It will be exhausting. It is simply a place that we live in. It is the very foundation of who we are. So very quickly, I've got four things that I see in the text. Four key principles that I believe that teach us about humble service. I want you to write them down. You can meditate on these. Listen, just a heads up. You're going to argue with me in the sermon. You're not going to like it, but hopefully each point is going to shut it down, okay? Because it comes from the text. And the first thing that we see is this. Ready? Right out of the gate. I am never too busy for humble service. I'm never too busy for humble service. You're like, where's that in the text, preacher? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Like, this is what we do in Bible teaching. We read a passage of Scripture, then we stop and we talk about it. The feast of the Passover this was the meal. This was the time. The, I mean, all year long, their calendar and their way of life revolved around the feast of the Passover. The Passover meal, if you remember, is in the Old Testament when God saved the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt through Charlton Heston. Do you remember that, right? Some of it's, you got to be kind of older to know what I'm talking about, right? Or know really good movies, okay? This is when God saved the people out of slavery with Moses. He performed some of the greatest miracles. And the Passover was is that they were to have a meal that night. And they were to sacrifice their lamb and they were to put the blood over the doorposts. And the death angel would pass over the home that had the blood there, signifying the very blood of Jesus Christ. And that death does not have the final word, but Jesus does. Their whole life revolved around this. If I mean, if you were like, well, how really busy was it? Imagine the 4th of July in Texas or something like that. I mean, you've got tank tops, you got jorts, you got all of that. America, baby, okay? This is a busy, busy time. Celebrations, everything is happening. And we learned this last week. Over half of John's gospel is devoted to the last days of Jesus, the last week of his life. That's how important this week is. And we know what Jesus' schedule was through all of the Gospels. 
So I thought this would be great, right, to go, well, how really busy was Jesus? Well, let's just look at Jesus's Google calendar for the last week of his life. And let's see everything that Jesus had to do and had to deal with. So the first day, Sunday on the Google calendar, Alexa or Siri would have Jesus walk two miles to Jerusalem from Bethany and meet thousands of people, massive crowds, because of his triumphal entry. Remember Palm Sunday and the significance of all of that? He walks two miles, teaches, sees the crowds, has all of this. Pretty, pretty busy day. Monday, Jesus leaves Bethany. He curses the fig tree on the way into the city, by the way. He weeps over Jerusalem. Then he very simply cleanses the temple for a second time in his ministry. Later in the day, he looks back into the temple. Then he leaves the city and spends the night in Bethany. This is when Jesus sees that they're making a mockery of the temple. He um, makes a whip out of the leather straps. He clears the temple, curses a fig tree. It withers right in front of him. He goes up onto a mountaintop, weeps over Jerusalem, says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, wouldn't I gather you like a mother gathers her hens? And he prays over the city. Tuesday, Jesus leaves Bethany, finds the fig tree withered. Huh, I did that. Teaches on faith. Um, he's there in the temple. He confounds and pronounces woes upon his enemies and the Pharisees. He leaves the city. Then he just does a little bit of an Olivet Discourse. By the way, in the Olivet Discourse, he teaches about the end times and what it's going to be like whenever he returns. So light reading. On the way back to Bethany, Judas makes the deal with Michael Corleone to betray Jesus. Tuesday's a little heavy day. Wednesday is a little bit more ambiguous in the scriptures. Jesus prepares for the Last Supper. And as Judas and the Sanhedrin prepare for Jesus' arrest, he remains in Bethany throughout the day and he stays the night there. Then Thursday, this is this day that we're talking, John 13. Peter and John are sent to make the preparations for the Passover meal after sunset. He eats the meal with the twelve, gives the um, upper room discourse. He washes the disciples' feet. Judas departs the Lord's Supper. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, the new covenant. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. By the way, he is so distraught and there's so much happening that he sweats great drops of blood. And most scholars believe that his body goes into some sort of shock because it's says that he is walking and he falls to the ground. He's sweating such great drops of blood and under such agony that doctors say that the capillary glands in the sweat glands under immense pressure can burst and he sweats great drops of blood. Then he gets illegally tried and he goes to the high priests and he begins to get mocked and beaten and one of his good friends betrays him. It's just a, just a light week, right? Why do I say all of this? I say it because of this. Serving is not a part of the Christian life. Serving is at the very heart of it. And listen to me. You can make as many excuses as you want. We can justify, we as human, listen, nobody lies to you more than you do. We can justify anything in our life. But at the end of the day, this is a truth. 
I'm never too busy to humbly serve. The second thing that I see in the text is this. Um, This one's real profound. You ready? Humble service is hard. This is deep stuff, guys. This is heavy theology today, okay? You say, where does that come from, Pastor Jason? Well, look in the text. We know who's there in verse 2 and 3. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. You know, I think sometimes we stained glass this and we gloss over it. And we're all like, well, Jesus knew. He prayed all night. He chose the 12. Judas was prophesied. Yeah, all that's true. But how about this? Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And you know what? He loved Judas. Don't ever forget that Jesus considered Judas a friend. A friend. And Judas betrays him. Have you ever been betrayed? By someone that you like love, that you that you entrusted your life with, and then they use the very thing that you trusted them with to hurt you. I mean, there is no hurt like a betrayal. And do you know what is interesting? What most scholars agree? As they are sitting at the Last Supper. It was very unique. They would have sort of kind of been on the ground. The table would have been very low to the ground. They they lean with, with one arm back and they eat with one arm. But you know what? We know the seating arrangements through the scriptures. And scholars are pretty sure where they know where Judas sat. So at one point, we know that the guest of honor doesn't sit at the head of the table like here in America. They they would have been at sort of the middle of the table. And we know from the Gospels that John at one point records that he leans his head back and rests it on Jesus' chest. Because John says in his Gospel that he was the disciple whom Jesus really loved. Which I always say, if I was writing a gospel, I would have said the same thing. (laughs) Right? The gospel of Jason, Jesus' favorite disciple. Right? Okay? So we know where John was. John was close enough to rest his head. Then there's a moment that we see that Peter um, is not understanding what Jesus is saying. And Jesus had to get up from the table to go over to Peter. So, So Peter's probably on one of the far ends of the table. But here's the moment. When the disciples begin to ask, who's going to betray you? Jesus says, it's who I give this morsel of bread to. And the gospel records that he dips the bread and he hands it to Judas. Most scholars believe Jesus is here. John is here. Peter's over here. And Judas is here. He's right next to him. When you think about that, there's almost an eeriness about it. And as I thought and I meditated on that, I thought, wow. 
Some of us have, have a lot of relational conflict. Some of us know the pain of betrayal. What's Jesus trying to show us and trying to teach us in this? And what if, I just submit this to you, what if the key to our relationships and the answer to relational conflict is actually pulling people closer and serving them rather than pushing them away? I just think it's so easy nowadays to delete and to do, and there's times where that's appropriate, and I understand, and I know the, the particular context of all of this. All I'm saying is Jesus pulled Judas as close as he possibly could, which tells me this. There's more grace and love in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. Jesus is not afraid to sit next to you. That's the whole purpose. It's the whole point. But it's still hard. And it's still difficult. And he washes all of their feet. I mean, guys, think about this. Jesus is kneeled down, washing Judas's feet. Did they make eye contact? Did, could Judas not look him in the eye because he had so much shame and guilt? And Jesus, knowing what has already taken place and what's going to take place, still pursues him with love and humbly serves him. At the end of the day, I just don't think Jesus is going to hear our excuses. Yes, it's hard. But the reality is, is it's the key that changes everything. So we see that humble service is a mark. We see that humble service, that we're never too busy for it. That humble service is hard. But how about this third one? I can't humbly serve until I've been humbled by service. Ooh, this is good. By the way, I'm really proud of that sentence. I think it's kind of catchy. It'd go good in a rap song, I think. Okay, right? I can't humbly serve until I've been humbled by service. You say, Pastor, where'd you get that from? Well, we'll get back to verses 4, 5 um, in a minute. But verse 6, he came to Simon Peter. This is so good. And, he said, and, and Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet, right? Love Peter. Love Peter. Peter finds out what he's going to say when you do at the same time, okay? He's just saying stuff, man. He's outspoken. He's like, this is Jesus. This is God. No way Jesus is watching my feet. And, and, and he says it with such like, this will never happen. And then Jesus says this. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you will have no share with me. So verse 9, Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, right? You will never wash me. Wash my whole body, God, right? It's like, man, Peter is struggling. And I love it. Praise be to God, because the struggle is real, right? What, what is, what's going on here, right? Well, there's a lot. There's theological stuff, this, that, and the other. Jesus is showing us the purpose of like, what, what is salvation? What does it mean to be made clean? Now think about this. Jesus is washing their feet with the towel that was wrapped around their waist. 
the dirt, they had the sandals, they're walking on dirt roads. When they would sit down, they're reclining. So like washing our hands today for them was like washing their feet. So he has this towel and all of the dirt that is on their feet, all of the dirt that was on them at the end of it ends up on him. This is a picture of the good news of Jesus Christ. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, bloody and marred beyond human recognition upon that cross, bears the sins of the whole world. What did that towel look like at the end of washing all of their feet? And what Jesus is saying is this, Peter, Peter, you have to let me humbly serve you through the cross before you can ever do anything for me. This is what's radical about Christianity, is that it's all about grace. Grace is an unearned gift from an unobligated giver. You didn't do anything to get it, and that's why it's grace. And Jesus is saying, I serve you so you understand what this grace really is. So then you live your life from grace, not for it. You don't live your life for grace. You live from the grace of God. So what, what is the application? What does this mean? Well, I think at a very basic level, Jesus is telling Peter this. You can't give what you don't have. Peter, you must let me wash your feet because you don't understand. You can't give what you don't have. And you know what? I think this is where a lot of us fail when it comes to humble service. You're trying to do the bootstrap thing. I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to serve. And I'm going to do it so I can lay my head down at night. And I can rest better knowing that I served in nursery for two weeks. And I'm okay. And I never have to do it again. And, and I served because I bumped into Pastor Jason at Walmart. We were grocery shopping. And I felt really bad that I hadn't been at church in a while. And the next time I wanted him to see me, I wanted him to see me serving. So now he knows that I'm going to heaven or something. Like it's, we're trying to pull from somewhere else. And the reality is very simply this, your salvation is your motivation to serve. That's it. Plain and simple. If it does not come from, but, but, but by the grace of God, there go I, that it's coming from the wrong place. Yeah, well, the people in my life, I know what you said earlier, Pastor. You're talking about relational conflict and pulling people closer. Do you understand what they did to me? Do you, and listen, Pastor, I'm ready. I'm ready to serve them. I'm just, I'm waiting for them to come up and to apologize and to own what they did to me. And as soon as they do that, I'm good. I'm in the game. I'm ready for this. Okay, two things. Number one, you're going to be waiting your whole life because it ain't coming. And the second thing is this. Did God wait for you to apologize before he went to the cross? For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
It's not like get your act together, knock it, put it together, then you come to Jesus, and then Jesus helps you get the rest of your life together. It starts with Jesus, it sustains with Jesus, it ends with Jesus, and all of eternity is Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's always Jesus. You can't serve humbly until you've been humbled by service. And do you know what I find people struggle with the most? Kind of especially in in our area, I mean, blue-collar area, some of the most hardest-working, best people I've ever met in my life live around here. And do you know what the Achilles heel is? Man, they are hard workers. They will provide for their family, and they will die before they ask for help. And do you know what Christianity is? Help. Help. God, I can't. My marriage, I can't. It's going to end. God, I'll have no relationship with my kids. I can't anymore. What if to be humbly served is is what God is calling you to? What if there's a thing right now in your life that you are struggling with and you know two, three women or men that you can call who will pray with you, who will be there with you? What if that's your next step? That Jesus is saying, you need to be served before you serve. And then when I see in number four, the last thing is this. There is a blessing in humble service. There is a blessing in humble service. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Here it is, verse 15. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Here it is, man. Truly, truly. Listen up. Anytime Jesus says truly, truly, you need to like stand up, get the weebie-jeebies out. You need to take a couple breaths. What is, it, what is he about to say? Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Here it is, verse 17. This is great. We've got the verse for you right here. If you know these things, blessed are you if you memorize them. Is that not? Y'all don't have that translation in your Bible? I got the hooked on phonics translation. My bad. Let's try it again. If you know these things, blessed are you when you tell other people to do it. Oh, that's not in there either, right? Okay. Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you when you gossip about the people who don't do those things. It's not in there either, right? Blessed are you if you do them. Hey, here's a crazy thought. You ready? Let's just strip this whole thing down budgets and policies and procedures. Let's strip it all down. What if, what if following Jesus is as simple as reading God's word and doing it to the best of your ability? Blow your mind. Check this out. You know what he doesn't say? Blessed are you if you Pray about these things. 
oh, we're on it now. <laughs> we're on it now. Because Christians have this language that they use to get out of stuff. And so it's like, oh, man, is, is that God's will? Is it, and by the time they describe God's will, it's a fairy unicorn running around at the end of a rainbow that you will never find, ever find, right? Is this God's will? And then the second thing is this. We're going to pray about this. Hey, guys, we got an event coming up. We're going to do this. We got this. Going to serve some kids, do this stuff. Ooh. I'm going to take that before the Lord. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to fast. You know what? I'm going to call three of my closest uh, Christian friends. They're going to fast with me. We're all going to fast together. And by the end of the fast, then we're going to discern if it's God's will or not. And up, it already happened. Get us next time. Get us next time, okay? We're going to fast again. We're going to do. What if it is as simple as simply doing it? And Jesus says, you want a blessing? Here's something that you can take to the bank. I say this with the utmost confidence, utmost confidence, that God always blesses obedience. Always, hands down. And listen, you don't need to know the outcome. The outcome is not your responsibility. Obedience is your responsibility. The outcome is God's responsibility. And he's very simply saying, there is a blessing if you do this. So listen, humble service is the mark of every disciple. Hands down, bar none. Now, I want to I show you in closing verses 4 and 5. They're my favorite verses in the whole passage. Look at this. He knew that he had come from God, verse 4. He rose from supper he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured the water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Look at the verbs. This is how you study the Bible. Like if it repeats itself a lot, or the verbs, rose, laid aside, taking the towel, tied it. There's action involved in this. Remember, the theme of our series is marks of an upper room disciple, and we've just learned that humble service is the first mark. But it's also comparing and contrasting a lower room mindset. And do you know what a lower room mindset is? Well, Jesus describes it. This, this is what a lower room person is concerned about, according to Jesus in John chapter 6. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Translations, dance for us, Jesus. Do something. Entertain us. Provide for us. We're only following you not because of your teachings, not because we want to love God, but because you provide hot bread for us. That's what we want. You know what he says after this? He basically tells them to chunk deuces and to kick rocks. And he turns to the disciples and he says, you guys want to go too? And you know what the disciples say? This saying is hard. Hard. I mean, Jesus cleared out the whole church. Just pew-clearing sermon. 
And when I think about this, do you know the image that comes to my mind? It's, it's this image. This is my son, Roman, on uh, his first birthday. Um, he inherited his dad's five head as a, as a baby. So, um, but this is the cake that they do that, you know, it's your first, oh, it's the first cake, and then do all this stuff. So you can get all the pictures and put it on Instagram, and nobody cares. And so when he was eating it, the, the bib, I'm always reminded of the bib. It was filthy, and he had more cake in the bottom of the bib than he did, like, in his mouth or anything like that. You see, Babies wear bibs because you feed them. Because you feed them. They don't, they don't do anything for themselves. And so what babies do is babies wear bibs because everything is done for them. And do and you know what they do if you don't do it for them? They cry. They cry, right? Because it's me. It's my life. That's all they know is how to survive. You see, lower room people wear bibs. And when they think of the church of Jesus Christ, they put on a bib and they say, serve me. But do you know what an upper, upper room person does? You know what Jesus did? See, all you need to do is you just need to remove the bib and lower it then it becomes an apron. And an apron is about service. This signifies other people. The mark of an upper room person is to lower the bib and let it become an apron. The Apostle Paul would say in the New Testament, some of you are still on milk and you've been in church for a number of years. I can't even take you to the meat of God's word. Hey, listen, can I say something very strong here? Some of us in this room have been attending this church for years. And we've never even served in nursery. And I tell you with all the love in my heart, you're wearing a bib. And your relationship with Jesus will very simply be a glass ceiling. But when you lower that bib and it becomes an apron, there is a blessing in humble service. So in closing, how are we going to apply this? I'm so glad you asked. When you leave today out in the lobby, there's going to basically be like a job fair. There is going to be every area of service that we have. So, some of y'all are going to try to leave church like this. <laughs> Whoop, got to go, got to go. Hey, does that back door work? Is that okay? Hey, listen, here's my greatest concern. Here's my greatest concern. I know what I can do, guys. I love teaching the Bible. I love coming up in here and just seeing what God has for I know what I can do. Here's my greatest concern. Is that you're going to be like semi-motivated. You'd be like, yeah, I'm going to lower the bib, put on the apron. You're going to go out there and you're going to sign up for an area of service and then you are going to become a ghost. Can you please think about this? Can you really understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying this is the base level. This is a mark of an upper room person. There's going to be a cost. 
It's going to interfere with schedules. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to serve with that person who said that thing about you that time to the other person, and you've never had a conversation, but you deleted them off Facebook, and then next thing you know, you're serving together on Sunday. Oh, my gosh, what do I do, right? It's going to be hard. This is not the end. This is the beginning. This is the beginning. Father God, we come before you today in Holy Spirit. I ask that through your life-changing power, only you, Holy Spirit, only you, Holy Spirit, can change someone's heart and someone's mind. God, we're not talking about motivation here. We're not talking about self-help motivation. We're not talking about maybe being jazzed up until Wednesday. God, the clarion call today is for those who are wearing bibs. And the call of Jesus Christ is to drop the bib and to make it become an apron. It's not about West Side. It's not about serving in these areas of ministry. And it's not about West Side. It's about you, Jesus. It's about the great mission. So God, I pray for the families. God, I pray right now, I feel a great urge in my spirit to pray for the men of this church. That it would not just be their wives that sign up, but it would be the husband who leads the way and says that my family will be marked by humble service. And that what I've realized is that I need to be humbled by the grace of God myself. And that generations would be changed. And that children would grow up in homes. And that they would know that my parents and that my home revolved around serving Jesus and serving people. Not preserving our comfort free time, but rather sacrificing it for the grace of God because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. And God, I pray a word of comfort to those who are serving. Oh God, we have such faithful people. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else with any other people. And God, I pray for those who have been serving and been grinding and they feel like throwing in the towel that they would not give up but that they would hear the words of Jesus. Blessed are you if you do this. And I pray that a blessing would wash over them, their family and their ministry. God, I believe that what changes the world is not another example of power, but a powerful example of humility. The lower we go, the higher we go in our relationship with you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.